Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. I gave an interview this a couple years ago and this person, she says to me, so why do you choose to operate this way? It's the most difficult way to run a restaurant. Already difficult to run a business that's difficult to run. Why do you choose to operate this way? And I just said to her, I was like, because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do if we want to make a change. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Hey, it's Josh. Do you want to spend 60 minutes planning out a profitable 2022 with me? Just you and me, on Zoom, camera on, pen and paper out, getting you super clear on exactly what your goals are and how you're going to achieve them. It's free, even though the call is worth like a gazillion dollars. Go to planwithjosh.com to book that call with me. That's planwithjosh.com to book a one-hour strategy session to make sure that 2022 is your most profitable year yet. We're running out of options as a species. Sustainability is more than a catchphrase these days. It's a moral obligation and a consumer expectation. But what does sustainability look like in action? Is it scary? Is it expensive? Is it even a realistic endeavor considering the thousands of things we have going on at this moment? Today we talk with Chef Matt Orlando. He's a damn good chef and restaurateur. How good, you ask? When he opened a mask, Renee Redzepi and Thomas Keller invested. Really, he's also leading the charge in sustainable practices, and today he runs us through the things he does to protect the planet while protecting his pocketbook. My ambitions when I became a chef was probably geared towards the first interpretation of a chef you just said. (laughs) (laughs) I moved to New York when I was like 23, never been there, just went there just because I wanted to cook at a higher level than I was able to in San Diego. And I think I spent the first years of my career operating high-end restaurants, really living that life or aspiring to live that life. I mean, that was right when Kitchen Confidential came out. That was kind of the mantra back then, working in New York, working in a basement, just being as like hardcore, sleeping as little as possible and (laughs) doing the stereotypical things that Bourdain laid out in that book. I mean, that was it. Obviously, you get older and you start to understand the industry more and you just kind of peel away the layers and you just start to see things. You just want to actually figure those out now and you just become infinitely more inquisitive about what's a deeper meaning of this industry. Has that been like a superpower of yours, the curiosity? Because to reach the highest levels of the field, it doesn't come naturally. I mean, whether we're talking about back of house or front of house, everybody's aspiring to get through that particular shift. And so, right, especially like if you're in the middle of a Saturday push, no one's wondering, how can I become a more excellent individual? And so how did you see your way through that? I think that came at a later state in my career. 
there has been this push over the last 10 or 15 years within the industry that you need to, you know, the a chef has been elevated to the ranks of superstar or rock star or whatever you want to call it. And so you have these young chefs coming in the industry and that's what they're aspiring for straight off the bat. And it just takes one person with a little bit of money that's like, hey, I want to open a restaurant. And then all of a sudden, these young kids who haven't gone through all the processes you need to go through within the industry to understand the industry are being handed restaurants to run. I worked for a gentleman, Francis Perot in San Diego. And out of all the chefs I've worked for, I would consider him my mentor. He's really taught me a lot about life, cooking, life, and how they need to intertwine with each other and understanding things about life will help you with cooking and vice versa. He used to always talk about how he used to just kind of just stay back a little bit. He had these opportunities to leave at the place where he was a sous chef and go be a head chef, but he didn't take them. And he just kind of was like, I didn't feel like I was ready and I wanted to learn more and I wanted to understand more before I took that leap. And the more he understood, the longer he waited because he saw the importance of that. And I really took that to heart when I kind of went out, moved to New York and moved to the UK and to Denmark, back to North. And, you know, I, I had numerous opportunities to go in a certain direction where it would be my own restaurant. And I chose not to take those because Francis really rang in the back of my head, like, just wait, you'll know when you're ready. There's a difference between intuition and that kind of feeling inside where you know it's right. Intuition often is kind of impulsory. You think it's your inside telling you, but it's actually like in the moment. And so I just stood back. I didn't open my own restaurant until I was 36. And everyone's like, you waited so long. I'm like, no, I waited until I was ready. That's really given me the maturity to really be inquisitive about what a restaurant is, how it should be operated, but also challenge the norms of what a restaurant is because I feel like I really understand what a restaurant is. And if we look at a restaurant, a restaurant, I think one of the biggest problems in our industry right now is that a restaurant has been run the same way for 100 years. Amen. There's no difference at all. Zero. So how do we challenge that? Because a restaurant is also something that's in the eyes of the public and their perception of a restaurant is a certain thing as well. And the public is our guest. So how do you start to challenge that without challenging your bottom line at the same time? Before moving forward, I want to move back. What is ready? How did you define ready in your own mind? I'm ready to open a restaurant when I've acquired these skills. Because I must tell you, at 30 years old, I thought I was incredibly ready to open my own bar. <laughs> I was not emotionally, mentally, uh -huh. professionally. <laughs> I most certainly was not ready. But I thought I was. And so what were the objective skills and knowledge you were looking to acquire before you knew that you were ready? It wasn't cooking. It had nothing to do with cooking. I mean, cooking is the easy part. How do you deal with people? How do you deal with pressure? How do you deal with 20 things coming at you at the exact same time and having to deal with all of them at the same time? When I was at Per Se, I definitely had a bit of a snap temper sometimes. And when I was the head chef at Noma, same thing. For the most part, I was pretty collected, but I definitely had my moments, I would say. But it was when I kind of got through that and started to realize, like, what does that do for anything? And how can I approach situations differently? And when that thought process started, and I felt like I could go into situations with somewhat of a level head, that's when I kind of was like, okay, let's do this now. And 
I had so much support. I mean, Renee, when I told Renee I was going to leave, uh, I gave him a year notice and he was nothing but supportive. He actually invested in the restaurant himself. And it was a cool way of having this people that you look up to kind of fortifying that, okay, now it's time. Now you're ready. I think you're ready too. And go for it. And I mean, Thomas Keller also invested in the restaurant as well. So I was very lucky to have that support behind me. And then we just went for it. And of course, you think you open a restaurant and then you're like, oh, actually, that's actually nothing what I thought it was going to be like. <laughs> what did Mike Tyson say? Mike Tyson say, when you got the best plan in the world, take a punch in the face. And then right. that's opening a restaurant right there. Isn't that the most interesting thing in the world? I mean, I ran like 8,000 square foot nightclubs before I opened a 900 square foot bar. And the difference between running somebody else's place and running your own place. Oh my God, it's night and day. And you think it's the same, especially when you reach the highest levels of management, but it is most certainly not the same thing. Man, I was really taken back by that difference. I mean, I ran one of the teams at Per Se. I ran the kitchen at Noma for three years. Like it was, you think you're ready in that sense until you actually open your restaurant and you're like, my view went from this to infinitely bigger. And now I need to fix toilets and console crying people in the back and talk to this guy on the table who's pissed off. And you're just like, how do you deal with this? And even in the first couple of years of Amass, I really struggled. And no one gets you ready for the fact that it's your place. So everything you're putting on the plate or pouring in the glass or how the service is presented is it's an extension of you. You're like okay. putting yourself out there. And what we did at Amass was very outside the box of what the norm is in Denmark. And in Denmark, Denmark is a very, you're in a box or you're out of the box. And if you're out of the box, people shun you to a certain extent. And people are like, what is he doing? What is this? Graffiti on the walls and hip hop, but it's fine dining. What's happening here? And so we had a lot of criticism in the beginning, and I didn't know how to deal with that. That took some time to a couple of years for me to work through that and really understand that there's no way ever you'll make a hundred percent of the people in your dining room happy all the time. And once I worked through that and accepted that, and also the fact that if you're doing something important, you're always going to have your critics regardless. And that was a lot of mental work I had to do on that one. I can imagine. You find me another industry where you can live your dream and it enrages people. Oh, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> like, like, like an intimately, how dare you serve food this way? Yeah. How dare this restaurant look this way? How dare this be your style of service when this is my expectation? Were there key mistakes that you made in those early days as an owner or operator that you would choose not to repeat moving forward? Yeah, I think how we communicated as a restaurant was really hard. We were doing something different. Our sustainability profile is aggressive. And it's taken us eight years to get here, but it really started about a year after we opened where we choose to kind of aggressively pursue this path. But I was so afraid to talk about it to the guests because there's like this fine line of informing and preaching that you don't want to cross because the last thing you want to do is preach. And so I really struggled with it. And then I thought to myself, well, we're just not going to tell anybody what we're doing. And then if they find out about it, it's a bonus. 
And that works for a while, but then you get frustrated because then no one's coming there for what you're doing. They're just coming there because it's a normal restaurant and you're putting all this effort into doing something different and approaching your ingredients and approaching how you run the restaurant differently. And so then you want to talk about it. So then we started to talk about it a little bit, but we just didn't have the vocabulary to talk about it because none of us had worked at a restaurant like this. And so it really took us a long time. I mean, we've been open a little over eight years now, and I only feel it's the last three years, four years that we've no, definitely three years max that we've figured out how to project ourselves out there. And, and where I'm still super conscious of that fine line of preaching and informing. I would argue that most of the issues that we faced within this industry, I can only speak for the last 20 years that I've been in it. But over the last 20 years, I would argue that most of the issues I've dealt with professionally have been my unwillingness to have conversations, whether it's with the team, whether it's about raising prices or sustainability or our core values. I was raised in a culture in this industry where you didn't have opinions. If someone was a Republican, you were a Republican. If someone was a Democrat in that conversation, you were a Democrat. Like as hospitality professionals, we just assume the ideologies of the people that we serve because we're there to serve. We're not there to make waves. And I think there's still a ton of that out there. I would argue that Everyone would have raised their prices significantly if they weren't unwilling to have those conversations about my prices are going up and here's why. And so I'm curious to note from your perspective, as you began to craft this, and sustainability is certainly a hot topic today, but it most certainly was not six, seven, eight years ago. And so when you start that process and you begin to incur those costs, how do you begin to have that conversation? And I know that you went all out in this last year, but yeah. I'm sure that that was the result of an ideation process that took oh, yeah. years to figure out the right messaging. How did you yeah. figure out how to message something that people may not be willing to receive in a way that they'll receive it? So we learned very quickly is that everything that we are really doing and how we approach serving the food and talking about the food the easiest starting point for us is it delicious. And you can convince a lot of people of a lot of weird, different things in beliefs and ideologies, as long as what they're eating is delicious. And so if you use that as a starting point, you don't really have to put that much more effort into, it's actually the guests choose to engage themselves after that. But like I said, we were really trying to figure out how to do that, even from a deliciousness standpoint, up until three years ago. Most restaurants, they open up and it's always a slight regurgitation of where the chef just came from, maybe the last two or three places they've worked. And there's not a clear message. Maybe the ideology is that message is clear, but that has to match up with the food in a certain way. I think the way we're cooking didn't really come about until like three years ago. So we were doing a lot of things around cooking. But three years ago, we really started to use cooking and understand our own way of cooking and flavors and using different things and processes to actually create something that was unique to us. But that took five years to get there because we we're really in a very uncharted territory. And so we start the conversation with deliciousness. And we have a research space that where we engage large food industry and stuff to help them identify their side streams and turn them into stuff that's delicious that they can resell again. And even in that process, when we have these meetings and deliciousness is up front. And so I would say the to answer your question, we start the conversation with 
is it delicious? If it's not delicious, then we need to make it delicious before we even start this conversation, or you're not going to convince anybody of what you're doing. Talk to me about the genesis of that food lab. So we had been coming up with a lot of interesting processes and techniques in the kitchen to address different side streams and byproducts that we were creating because cooking is refinement and any process of refinement produces side streams. So we had had all this stuff that we'd been working on and we just got, and it's, it had always been, okay, butchering a fish and then you have a little pot of some experiment going on on the side. It just, we got to the point where we were, Kim, who my former head of R&D, we were prepping for service and doing these projects on the side. And it just, we got to the point where we had so many of them going or done that we needed space to understand exactly what was happening when we did this stuff so we could duplicate it. And so I took the chance and kind of pulled Kim out of the kitchen and we built a little spot in a corner and just kind of started really messing around with these processes to understand them from a more scientific base level. And then fast forward to COVID and second lockdown, first lockdown was just spent stressing and not really knowing what was going to happen. When the second lockdown came, I was like, okay, we sat down and like what I'm about to say, I think is the next evolution of a restaurant. If we think about a restaurant differently and what any restaurateur or chef should never underestimate is the value of what is contained in a restaurant from an intellectual point of view. There are so many things within the four walls of a restaurant that have so much value that we take for granted every single day because we're just in it every day, whether it's how you deal with people from a hospitality standpoint or all these different processes that we use every day to make food delicious, that when you look at different startups, food startups out there, none of them have chefs working for them. Right. So they don't really understand deliciousness. Processes aside, just understanding what deliciousness is is something that is so valuable because out in the world, there's not a lot of people outside the restaurant industry that understand what it takes for something to be delicious. So we spent that time during the second five-month lockdown really saying, okay, we have this research space. We've come up with all these different processes and techniques. How can we then apply these to larger food industry that has massive amounts of side streams how can we apply this to that and then make them delicious again? Convince them that now you're taking a product you were paying to be taken away. Now you're taking, not only are you not paying for it to be taken away, but now you can take it and resell it and make money. And the momentum of the research space is really growing now. I mean, we did our first product to market with a industrial scale sourdough bakery. They produce many, many kilos of bread every day that can't be sold. It's either over-fermented or the wrong shape to go in the packaging. Every time we do this with them now, we're into the second round of it. We take 350 kilos of bread that would just be discarded and we turn it into 15,500 ice cream bars. And we've done two runs on it of 15,500, so we're just around 30,000. And they just committed to 120,000 more for 2022. So... For me, that was a real eye-opener. And it's really made me take a step back and look at the industry because a restaurant itself is somewhat of a materialistic thing. It's an experience that people pay for that not everyone can afford. There's a whole other conversation about that ecosystem up there of people that live off of restaurants and all that. You know, you know what I'm talking about. And just yeah. all that <laughs> grossness up there. 
<laughs> right. Absolutely. To just leech off of all our hard work. So I'm thinking this is a way for us to make our restaurant and any restaurant can engage in this. Our restaurant have more meaning than just this experience. And I'm not trying to take away from the experience of a restaurant because it is special and it is something that creates culture and it's important. And I don't want people to misunderstand me for that because I'm a restaurateur and I love the experience and I create that experience. But how can you build off the back of that experience and give more depth and meaning to your restaurant that is not just serving food and drinks and creating an atmosphere? How can you have a broader impact on society? And for us in particular, how can you have a broader impact on the food system, our food system that's just so broken? So that's our first project. We've just signed another deal with a much, much larger entity to engage in the exact same thing to help them product develop out of their side streams. And now we're just really looking at that resource space is geared fully towards understanding and using different products and techniques to upcycle side streams to actually make a profit on the backside. So like I said, there's so much value within restaurants that we all take for granted. And I think we're not the only ones. There's a lot of restaurants out there that are really starting to realize the value of what they have. And it's taken a global pandemic for us to all kind of wake up and look up from the stove or, or from the dining room and, and just realize that, listen, there's other business opportunities that don't involve us selling our souls or doing stupid ads and standing there with a McDonald's hamburger or something like that. There's things that we can do that still are true to our ethos that we can make money off of. 100%. I would argue that everyone that opens a restaurant does it with the goal of influencing food culture on like a micro level, right? Yeah. But we can have a massive impact in the way people eat and in the way people view food. And we exactly. can lead from a 3,000 square foot restaurant located anywhere in the world. That's the beauty of the internet. Exactly. Exactly. And what's crazy is that we are involved every day. We touch every day food. And if you really think about it and you zoom out from like a macro vision and you're like, first of all, food is something that we put in our bodies three times a day, four times a day, however many times you eat every day. And how is every person on the planet not talking about food in one way or another? How has it become so insignificant in our lives? Why is it not the most important conversation that's being had right now? And no matter what your demographic, no matter where you live, you still do that three times a day. Why isn't everyone curious about what happens when it goes into your body and what happens when it's in your body? I've never even thought about this until, I don't know, a year ago. <laughs> and so for me, I've really been diving deep into everything around food, the culture, what creates culture, because also this, you know, the way we work at a mass is, is very much a complete mind shift to another way of thinking about how you run a restaurant, how you communicate. And it's a way of thinking that puts you way outside of your comfort zone. For me, it's super important that people start thinking like this. First of all, our industry is a very irresponsible industry as a whole. If you just look at strictly from a product standpoint and how we engage products and everyone's hoping that, oh, we're going to have this massive pandemic, post-pandemic, this massive shift in our industry and so many things are going to change. And while there are a lot of amazing conversations happening right now that would have never happened before, it needs to come down to the actual running of the restaurant. 
the, the core running, how products come into your restaurant, how those are dealt with, packaging, all this stuff. All that stuff needs to change or be thought about differently because it is the amount of waste that is produced is absolutely astounding. And people are just doing it like there's no tomorrow, not even thinking twice about it. Absolutely. I owned and operated a fine dining restaurant in a year and we brought in a new chef, Chef Sammy Mansoor, who is huge into sustainability, which honestly had never even been a consideration for me. Yeah. And it seemed like a problem for the rich to tackle. It seemed like a luxury. Like once we had achieved a certain level of profitability, that's when we would become a more conscious, more sustainable restaurant. But he pushed for it. And it's something I'd really like for you to unpack, because when we talk about sustainability broadly, it feels Mm -hmm. scary and it feels fucking expensive. It just does. And it's not that scary. And when done right, it's really not that expensive. So there was a study, I think it came out last year in the US. And for every $1 you invest into sustainable practices, you'll get seven in the long run. And that is something that we can see every day. But the problem is that when people think about going through this process of turning over or trying to make that move in that direction, the thing that stops people is that they try to think of everything at the same time all the things they can do at the same time. And that is by far the worst way to go about it. Because if you do that, you'll do a bunch of things, about 75% of what you should be doing them. And then you'll get super frustrated and then you'll quit. I mean, patience is the key ingredient in this recipe, patience. Because if you're not mastering certain things along the way, you need yourself to feel a sense of accomplishment we're primal animals. We need to feel satisfaction in whatever we're doing. And so my best piece of advice is, first of all, be patient, understand what you want to do and make a plan for that. And so when I say a plan, make a list of 20 things you want to do to move you in that direction and do one at a time, do one at a time, master it. So it becomes like muscle memory. The hardest part of this is creating a culture in your staff to actually execute because you can't walk around all day looking in trash cans and freaking out about someone put the plastic in the wrong one and blah, 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 all that stuff. And then once you start chipping away at that list, you're going to feel this sense of accomplishment. But to really understand what you're doing, you have to collect data. I never thought as a chef, I would ever say the word data as much as I do. (laughs) Ever. But it's so essential to being able to understand what you're doing. Because if you don't understand what you're doing, you can't adjust and move in the right direction. And yeah, perfect example, you know, we started to get our CO2 footprint read in, I believe it was 2016. And I remember we were already doing a lot of things in the restaurant moving in this direction. And I remember getting our first reading back in, I was on the computer because we zero food print in San Francisco were the ones that did it for us, Anthony and Karen. So I got the number back and I was like, because the average restaurant up here makes, or the high-end restaurant produces about 21 kilos of CO2 per guest over a year. I'm like, we are going to crush this. No problem. 18.5 kilos. I was like, no way. This is wrong. This is totally wrong. There's no way this, we were way better than this. And then I called up Anthony. I was like, can we get on a call on the computer? I just want to go through everything step-by-step. We went through everything. And that process of going through every single item on the analysis was 
the single biggest learning point for me as a chef wanting to move in this direction. Because there were things on there that we put so much effort into that actually produced very little difference. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do those, but we didn't have to put that much effort into it to do the same. And then things on there that I just completely didn't even think about that had huge impacts. And it was really easy to see just by those numbers what decisions to make. We are also on the extreme end of this. So like when I get a reading back that says lamb is five times higher in GHG emissions than any other animal, I'm just like, take it off the menu forever. And so this reading that we get done every year allows us to understand what we're doing. And then it allows us to say, okay, are we willing to let this go to have this impact next year? This last reading, it was beef and pork represented, or 2019, beef and pork represented 20% of what we purchased, but 80% of our CO2 output. And no one knows, no one knows these kind of numbers. And it's crazy when you see that it's real. You're like, wow, this is what everyone's talking about. Don't eat meat and this and that. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't eat meat, but it has an impact, a vast impact compared to a lot of things. So also in this whole extreme, we're (laughs) reopening the second time. I'm like, look at my wife one night. I'm like, you know what? We're not serving farmed animals anymore. We're just not doing it. So at a mass, we took farmed animals off the menu. We serve some wild game right now in the fall, winter, and then we serve fish and vegetables. That's it. And so that's, of course, an extreme version of what you can do. But there's versions of that along the way. And none of that stuff would have been possible without understanding that data. So collect data. It's important. Like a lot of people, oh, I'm a chef. I don't need to collect data. This is how I want to cook. I guarantee you, you start collecting data it will influence the way you cook 100%. If you have a bit of soul left in you, at least. (laughs) (laughs) So next steps. Let's assume that somebody's interested in journeying down the sustainability road. What are the resources? What are the first steps? How can they learn? I think Anthony Mint over at uh, Zero Footprint is a great resource. Anything else you would recommend? I would say start educating yourself about the food system because I guarantee you the majority of chefs out there don't actually understand what it takes to grow something, take it out of the ground, clean it, package it, ship it, unpack it. I mean, there's so many steps. It's just something that appears at the door and it's no one really gives much of a thought. Understand that system, because once you start to understand that system, it's going to really change how you approach so many things. It's like that one thing that triggers something in your brain that you're like, okay, if I understood this, now I want to understand that. Then I want to understand that. And that's how I've done it. I remember one of the biggest things for me, it was really understanding meat, which has led to where we are now. But also I've spent the last seven years integrating myself into the world of fish and how fish is caught, distributed, how many distributors it actually goes through before it gets to you, markets. And that is also a very scary place to be. Understanding vegetables that are farmed organically and biodynamic versus conventional, what impacts conventional farming has. I think it's super important before you start this process. There's a couple of low-hanging fruits you can do immediately, but really understand the system that we are all embedded into. Because it's so important and we can't just be another link in the chain that has no desire to actually understand what role we play 
in the world in this food system that's so broken. And restaurants play a massive role in the broken food system. So how can we backtrack? And we have the ability, because we have somewhat of a scale, to have impact. And everyone always asks, you know, I, how can I do this at home? And is it worth it impact-wise? I'm like, you know what? If you zoom out, what you do at home probably doesn't have a big impact. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it because it's the right thing to do. And I gave an interview this a couple of years ago. And this person, she says to me, I know she was looking for some like crazy moon and stars answer. And she's like, so why do you choose to operate this way? It's the most difficult way to run a restaurant. Already difficult to run a business that's difficult to run. Why do you choose to operate this way? And I just said to her, I was like, because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do if we want to make a change. And that is why I want to feel good about when I go home and I look at my daughter and we're eating dinner and we're eating the right food. And I want her to grow up and understand this and be a part of it and go on with her life with the same kind of ethos. And it's the only way we're going to do this is if we, I mean, education is the most important tool here. It's not us turning kale stems into seaweed or anything like that. For me, anyway, it's like, how do we start to affect people and they go out, affect their kids, their kids grow up, affect their kids. I mean, this change that everyone's talking about within the restaurant industry, or should I say the human race, this is not a change that's going to happen in our generation. This is a generational thing. If we don't lay the foundation for our kids to take and run with a solid foundation that means something that can actually do something, then, I mean, why are we even, for me, like, that's why we operate. That's why we run a mass. And that's why a mass is a restaurant that's meant to have impact. And we don't make a lot of money. No restaurant makes a lot of money, as you know. (laughs) But for me, it's like, and I don't want to sound righteous in saying this and all, because we're no different than any other restaurant. But for me personally, it's like, I want to feel good about coming home and seeing my kids and knowing that I've given them the tools to hopefully tick it in the right direction towards how we need to change as a society. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Yeah. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? My words of advice in the industry moving forward and just us moving forward in general is that never think that what you're doing is too small. I mean, in the beginning of a mass, people questioned what we were doing because they thought it was weird and ridiculous. And But if you truly feel like it's the right thing to do, and this way of thinking, I think it has to become the way people feel. But if you truly feel like that, don't let anybody tell you it's not significant enough to do. Don't. And do what you feel is right. You got to go off like your, I don't want to say emotions because emotions are like knee-jerk reactions, but your intuition should guide you. But in a way that you really think about what you're doing and understand, understand what you're doing. A deep knowledge of what you're doing is so important because that's the only way you can really kind of spread the word. So I would say, keep doing what you're doing. Don't let anybody tell you it's wrong, but really understand what you're doing because it's the easiest way to talk to someone, to convince them to make this switch in mindset. You know, you talk to someone that's like really well-spoken and really like, this is my message. You're like, I want to do that. (laughs) So it is, that's the way. Just understand what we're doing and keep the course. That's Chef Matt Orlando. For more on Amass, visit amassrestaurant.com.
If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.